The following was produced for the Focus on the Family daily radio broadcast featuring psychologist and author Dr. James Dobson. This program is entitled Lifted Out of the Depths and last aired in October of 2005. And now here's how this broadcast got underway. Welcome to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller, and our host on today's program is Dr. Bill Meyer. Now, we enjoy so much hearing from our listeners. So we get a lot of feedback uh, on various programming that we present, and uh, by far one of the most popular things we do with these broadcasts is to present recorded personal stories, uh, testimonials from the lives of interesting, uh, inspiring people. And today we have such a message it's dramatic. It's a story of hope and of God's power, and it comes from a man who spent many years behind bars. I do hope you'll stay tuned. Our host is psychologist and author Dr. Bill Meyer. John, let me set the stage for our listeners. Imagine that you're a young person with your entire life ahead of you, and because of the mistakes you've made, you wind up being sentenced to spend what could be the rest of your life in jail. Hmm. Okay, so this is a teenager who is facing the prospect of a lifetime, perhaps, in jail. I would suspect that there would be no hope, no reason to try to get out of the situation in a positive way. Um, I would guess, uh, you're the psychologist, Bill, but I would guess that despair would set in in that kind of a situation. There's no doubt. You know, when you lose that freedom, John, when those prison doors clang shut behind you, it starts to set in that this is for real. Mm. And you know that a few years ago, I went to a maximum security prison in New York where I interviewed David Berkowitz, the Mm. son of Sam killer, and uh, caused me to do some serious thinking about what prison life is really like for the men and women who are behind bars. Uh, Many of those individuals are deeply troubled. They are dealing with isolation, with fear, with depression, and oftentimes with a lot of anger. Today, we want to reach out and share hope with those who are in jail or in prison, because as you know, John, we hear from a lot of prisoners here at Focus Mm -hmm. on the Family, and this broadcast is often the highlight of their day. Um, We want to offer encouragement to you if you are imprisoned, or if you're imprisoned in a spiritual sense, Mm -hmm. if you're searching for meaning in life and you just haven't been able to find it. Mm -hmm. The man we're about to hear from, Serge Leclerc, fully understands what it's like to be lost without hope. Uh, He spent 21 years in prison, including over six years in solitary confinement, Mm. which I cannot fathom. Uh, Six years isolated from everyone. His last imprisonment was the result of involvement in a $40 million drug laboratory. But while he was in prison... He ultimately found what he was looking for, the real meaning of life, and that's where hope comes in. Hmm. This is an amazing story, John. Uh, Serge is now a motivational speaker, and he's the director of Teen Challenge in Saskatchewan, Canada, which is a faith-based residential recovery program for substance abusers. Uh, We're going to have more details about Serge at the end of the program, but right now let's get to his message. Here is Serge Leclerc. I'd like to read something to you. I read this to myself every day. I pray it every day. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore upon me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. That's what it means to me, and that's what happened to me. And that's what it can mean for you, because if you don't know Jesus Christ in your life, what I'm about to tell you is so stark and so hard to show you what the grace of God can go through and cut through, that whatever problems you have, whatever burdens you have, if you put them on to the Lord, if you bring the Lord into your life, if you say this to yourself every day, then you'll have the joy of God and His free spirit within you and the strength to do whatever is possible, whatever you want to do with the strength of the Lord in your life. I come here to praise and glorify God. All that I am today and all that I do today is not to me, but to God. I was born of a 15-year-old country girl who'd ran away from home 
because she had been sexually abused by her grandfather and then in return her father and like many damaged young girls she fell to the first man who immediately left upon finding out she was pregnant I was born in a summer resort in the middle of the winter my mother cut the umbilical cord with her own teeth and because she was an illiterate country girl neither knowing how to read or write and because she couldn't speak the English language properly were French she had to work very menial jobs as dishwashers and elevator operators and work 80 hours a week. And she could only afford to move into the ghetto of Toronto, Cabbage Town. And at eight years old, I did something that many, many young boys did in our neighborhood and do today. I played hooky from school. Under the Juvenile Delinquency Act of that day, playing hooky from school meant that you fell into a category called the status offense. That also applied to children that maybe came from a single parent or a parent with trouble with alcohol or came from an abusing home or came from poverty. You were classified as incorrigible and the state would take care of you. So they took my mother and they sat her in a juvenile court and they called her an unfit mother, an unfit woman for having the gall to be poor and not having a husband. This was a woman who went to church twice a week and neither smoked or drank and never hit me in anger. She was an unfit mother. I got to see my mother once more in the next three years. She put me in St. John's training school. We came from a Catholic background. And training schools in that era were humongous affairs of five or six hundred boys and, and some of the brutality is just lately starting to surface in the newspapers. And because there was such a high ratio of residents of children to staff to use the older and the tougher boys to control the younger and the weaker ones. And you had wholesale brutality and beatings, rape, solitary confinement. Because you see, there was a lot of people that fell into status offenses. And there was a lot of boys going into these facilities. Having never been exposed to that type of brutality at the hands of an adult, I decided that I was going to run away. And I became a street child. But I became a street child with a lot of ghetto boy sense. And I realized that if you stayed off the streets at night, your chances were much better at staying free for a little while. Free from the people who were put in charge of you to care for you. And I would live in abandoned houses and abandoned boxcars and cornfields and back of Casaloma in Toronto underneath porches. I'd eat out of garbage cans in the back of restaurants. I did whatever it took to survive because I was learning that the people that were put in charge of me to care didn't care. And I was soon realizing that in order to survive, I better care less than everybody else. And they would rearrest me because eventually somebody would notice this tattered eight, nine-year-old boy and back to the facility I would go. And every time I went back, the brutality got a little worse because I was incorrigible. I was defiant. After about a year and a half of this, or going on two years, once again I was rearrested and I was sent back to the training school. And this time I realized that I was really going to get a good dose of care. Because this staff member took a particular dislike. I guess I was causing him too much paperwork. And he made me his special project. Two months short of my 10th birthday. When he processed me, I went to the stable and I broke off a pitchfork tine, one of the center prongs of a pitchfork. And I wrapped cloth around the end of it when that staff came on shift that night and sure enough called me in his office to show me how much he cared. Before he could do so, I stabbed him. And you can imagine the desperation of a boy not yet 10 years old attacking a full-grown man. I learned that you didn't have to care at all in order to stab somebody. They sent me foster care in a home in Cabbage Town, which was the ghetto still, to a bungalow with 12 other children. And the family was supplementing their income by taking children in. Both of the 
the people in charge, the people who were to show care to the children, were alcoholics. I just realized that this was just another facility. And that I was better off and much safer to be with people that didn't care for me. And out the bedroom window I went to become a street child. By the time I was 12, I carried a straight razor. That straight razor changed to a gun by the time I was 16. I was a gang leader of a gang that's been written up in, in different books, one called Cabbage Town. It was called the Bowery. It was a pretty infamous gang, large street gang, and at the age of 15, I was the leader of this gang. With men, with grown men, 25 years old, taking orders from a 15-year-old kid. And it makes you wonder, what's a grown man taking orders from a kid? Because I was good at what I did. And because I didn't care. I was becoming hard. And getting sliced open or a broken nose in a street fight was common occurrence. Probably had a black eye for the majority of my childhood. And some people approached me, a fellow by the name of Dr. Ian Toner, and said, you know, Serge, I have been, you've been recommended to me by a number of people. You control a large area of this city. And I just came from California working with a man called Dr. Timothy Leary, who invented LSD. And we want to bring this drug into the streets, and we think you're a good way of doing it. After all, everybody wants it. And I said, right. I was the beginning of an odyssey of 20-year drug use. Seven years of it as a heroin addict. It's a mainline user. Not only living in hell, but popping hell into me. And as a young man, when you violate the law, especially when you're wired out of your mind on drugs, and you think you're Jesse James, you're soon to be arrested. And the police put a tag on me when they sent me through the system. This kid don't care. And since I didn't care, they immediately sent me to a maximum security. And upon entering into that maximum security at a nice tender age of about 18 or 19, this wild weightlifter, well-muscular adult decided that I couldn't be as bad as they said. After all, I was only a chubby fat kid from Cabbage Town trying to get along, baby-faced. And maybe I'd make a sexual play toy instead. I told that man to go get his knife. Because that wouldn't happen. One of us would die because I didn't care. And I stabbed that man seven times and took his lung out for him. I didn't care. And when they were dragging me to solitary confinement, I made the mistake of lashing out and breaking a guard's jaw. I spent the next 27 months in solitary confinement in a six-by-nine cement cell. I wasn't allowed out for showers. I wasn't allowed out for fresh air. I wasn't allowed out to talk to anyone. I wasn't allowed to read. I learned what it was to hate. I lived in the belly of the beast. Where up was down and down was up. There was no rules. And because of who I was in the power structure of the prison, I was guilty by association and singled out for special treatment. They ripped my clothes off and they hogtied me. It's a practice that's used right now somewhere in Canada. Someone is hogtied. They connect chains to the shackles on your feet and they pull them onto the handcuffs on your back till your legs are bent up and the heels are, are touching your buttocks. And you can't move on your side because you rip your shoulders out. You got to lay on your belly like a dog, like a snake. They left me there for 10 days eating bologna sandwiches out of a paper plate, face first like that, like a dog. I became one of the most feared and vicious men in the prison system as I killed and beat and maimed my way through existence year after year. When I was led out to the streets, I would carry that over with me. And I became very good at being a criminal. That's all you need to be criminals, learn how to hate. I became an organized crime figure. One of the heads of a family as powerful as any other criminal family in Canada or in the United States. We're an empire. I did business with mafia godfathers. 
who wined and dined me to do business with me. I controlled Quebec and Ontario for designer drugs, for methamphetamine, for acid. I controlled 50% of the flow of hashish in here. We're the gang, after all, who invented MDA, who invented methamphetamine. We had all the old laboratory formulas down pat. We invented them. Controlled the northern United States for methamphetamine. And you didn't come to do business with me unless you had a million dollars. So it wasn't worth my while. The rest of it was chump change. I'd be taking too great of a chance for too little profit. And I had no compulsions whatsoever of spilling 10 or 15 million dollars worth of drugs on the streets to pollute the veins and the minds of children right across Canada. I didn't care. It was just another form of hate, just money. When I was arrested, I had a half a million dollars cash in my closet that I'd kept there for six months. No other reason that it was money, because I lived off hate. I was as hard as hard could be, and as dysfunctional as any human being could ever be. So once again, when I was arrested and went back to the penitentiary, nothing different. Just another stage. And when I walked into this maximum security in Quebec, a young 25-year-old weightlifter, wannabe biker, decided that he was going to rise a little bit in the power structure and deal with this short, squat, graying-haired young man. And he found himself on the working end of a three-foot steel table leg. And I found myself in solitary confinement once again. Nothing new. Already about six years in solitary confinement. It was a home away from home within the prison. If I got stressed out, I used to go to the hole for two, three months just to rest. Nothing new. I mean, what? You can live off of hate anywhere. All you need is a three-foot square. And as I sat there in solitary confinement with an order for nobody to come near myself, because I was just as prone to punch a guard in the mouth than I was an inmate, I noticed uh, an event. And we talk about as Christians seeds being planted, the first of, a, of several seeds being planted. I used to stare out my door, and I used to watch this strange little man come in twice a week. And twice a week, he would be skin-fanned. He would take the clothes off him. And he would spoil various parts of his body. It's a too strange staff. And I used to watch this. And he used to go around to the other cells. And he'd spend five or ten minutes talking to each inmate. Handing out some crazy magazines. And I watched this man as day turned into week. And week turned into months. And months, months started going on a year. And I watched this man every week come in. And I said to this man, this guy's kooky. How would anybody subject themselves for this type of humiliation to do what? To talk to one of the scum in this hole? He was weird. He was a Christian. You know, all Christians are weird, aren't they? Say it again. <laughs> And one day I called him over to the cell because I realized that whatever in warped type of manner this man was thinking in, that he cared. I think he was brain damaged, but he cared. <laughs> so I called him over to the cell, and you can imagine that he, he almost went into shock because there was a strict order not to come near my cell. And when I was escorted to the yard, they would put shackles and handcuffs on me. Before I was allowed to walk into the yard, I had to stick my arms through a door to get a pair of handcuffs put on me. And here's this animal calling this man over, this cute little man, over to the cell. And he just about went into seizure. And, and, and he started to talk a mile a minute, I guess. He saw his opening. And he started to talk about Billy Graham, and he started to talk about God. And I said, whoa! I want to hear about Billy Graham. All he's doing is pushing another product. And I want to hear about God. There is no God. Tell me about God. I said, but I just want to tell you, you know, I kind of respect you. 
I think in your own weird way, you care. And I just wanted to tell you that. Because next month I'm being shipped out. And before I left, I just wanted to tell you, even though I think you're weird, you're a good guy. And just as he was leaving, as he took a step away and it was away from the door, he all of a sudden had a second thought and reached back and handed me some magazines. And without me even thinking, I just grabbed them. Whoa! Christian magazines! In my hand, no, I threw them in the corner of the cell. Can't have this. And I went down to my, the steam wagon and I went and I got my supper tray. And I came back. And you've got to realize that in solitary confinement... There's no tables, and you're not allowed anything but a plastic spoon. So sometimes eating becomes difficult, especially when you're munching on a minute steak or something. And, and, and that's exactly what happened. That night I got bored, and I got frustrated with this meal, and I started to wander. And all of a sudden, when I came out of my daze, my eyes were on the cover of the magazine that lied on the top that I'd thrown in the corner. Aha, another seed going to be planted here. And as I looked, you know... President Jubilee didn't mean a thing to me. Well, there's a picture on the front of it. And the picture was, was a fellow by the name of Roy Hill, a fellow that I had grown up with. A fellow that had done at least 15 years in the prison system for just beating up guards and beating police officers up. Never did a day in jail for stealing. One of the toughest men I knew with his fists. What was he doing on the cover of a Christian magazine? This guy must have blown it. Gone right off the deep end. And of course, my curiosity was aroused. And I read the article. And he talked of his life story. And his life story is, is very, very similar to the life story of the majority of men in prison. You just change some of the components. And he talked about his mother being a prostitute. And how she was an alcoholic. And how he became a street child and how he became an alcoholic. And how he was consumed with this hate. How people never cared. And I read the article. It was all the same thing. It's same story. Same old. Until I got to the end line. And he simply said, you know, it's all changed. For the first time in my life, I know peace of mind and I know freedom since I've come to know God. That statement was to come back and haunt me, eventually come back and save me. And I laughed to myself and said, just burnt out. And the cell beside me was a 19-year-old boy who was doing 14 years for robbing three pizza establishments with an unloaded shotgun. The government decided they were going to spend $60,000 a year incarcerating him for stealing $350. Made sense to me. And this boy, since he was my next door neighbor, used to talk to me a lot. And he used to talk to me about his life. About being abandoned at two years old. About being a street child and a juvenile. Delinquent. And then through the reformatory. And now standing in a federal prison, one of the toughest maximums, because he stabbed somebody who would have liked to rape him. Common story. Just change the components. You got the background for most prisoners. Nothing unusual. And he used to tell me that nobody cared. And I used to tell him, kids, you're right. Nobody cares. No one. No one. Not even me. I don't care. You better learn how not to care if you want to survive. You care less than everyone else. You care till you don't even care about life anymore. Because that's the only way you're going to make it. Well, three weeks after, I listened to that boy hang himself. The sound of somebody hanging and choking their life out of him is a sound you'll never forget. You know it's so final. And as he took the body past my cell on a stretcher, I suddenly realized that I had been screaming inside of myself, kids, you shouldn't have done it. Because if nobody else cares, I care. Well, you can imagine what that did to my psyche. All my life I lived off of hate and not caring. Don't tell me I might have been human after all. That alien thought of actually caring about whether another human being, whether a 19-year-old boy hung himself or not, was so alien to me that it just drove me around the bend. I refused to come out of my cell. I refused to eat. I refused to go to work. My friends got worried about me. 
Because usually in my past pattern of behavior, if I went into hibernation, I was psyching myself up to go to war. And a friend of mine, a man doing 24 years, also an organized crime figure, martial arts expert, stopped by the front of my cell to that concern and said, you know, I'm worried about you, Serge. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of worried about myself. And he said, are you psyching yourself up to go to war? And I said, no. I said, I'm just bummed out. I don't know what's happening to me. Because all, all, all during this time is echoing that sentence. For the first time in my life, I know peace of mind and freedom since I've come to know God. And it just kept echoing and it wouldn't go away. It was like an insect around my ear. My friend said to me, come to the chapel. Why don't you come with me? Chapel? What are you, nuts? You're not a Christian? He said, no, I'm not. But it's one of the few places that I can go in this insane asylum that I don't have to worry about getting stabbed in the back. I said, well, what do you do there? He said, well, we have coffee and donuts. Well, yeah, well, it's not a thing to run out in a rainy night for. What else do you do there? Well, we sing songs. Well, you sing like a frog. Do you mean they say, I've got to go listen to you sing like a frog? So, I mean, it's not too appetizing right now. What else? He said, you know, there's a strange thing. I've been watching these people come in here for the last number of months through snowstorms on Christmas Day all over. They come in here to talk to the guys. Do you know, I think they really care. The magic words. I had to see this strange animal who truly cared. Pulled the screw to crack my cage and off I went. Almost two years later, in a super maximum security on a cold cement prison cell floor, I asked Jesus into my life and everything turned around. A 20-year drug dependency stopped with that decision. Immediately. Stopped. That in itself is more a minor miracle than anything else that I'm telling you. They spend millions of dollars a year trying to stop men from using drugs and fail. All i got to do is say, Jesus Christ, come into my life, and it stopped for me. It should stop for them. Sometimes Christians and our second and third generation Christians get a little blasé about the power and grace of Jesus Christ. Because they haven't had... A dramatic testimony like my own to talk about, that they don't think that there's a whole lot of importance to that grace. Well, that's very wrong. Because that grace changed me to who I am today. And I'm only here today because of that grace. Oh my, what a story. Uh, this is Focus on the Family, and we've been hearing the testimony of Serge Leclerc. And, uh, Bill, the words of that beloved old hymn, Amazing Grace, come to mind. Um, it's grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Mm-hmm. Um, that grace that Serge found behind bars really is the same grace that's available to all of us. It's the same grace all of us need. Uh, without Christ, we are all of us, just as lost as he was. Mm, that's so true, John. And, and each one of us uh, takes a different journey to salvation. Uh, for some folks, like Serge, it's, it's very dramatic. Uh, for other people, it may be more of a process of learning about God's love and, and learning about his grace. Uh, John, it, it's so important for our listeners to know that God can reach them wherever they are, whatever mm. is going on in their life. Uh, we get so much mail here, and we know that this program uh, penetrates right through prison walls in many places around the country. And I talked before about visiting David Berkowitz uh, in that maximum security prison. And I know there are men and women listening right now who are in the same situation. That They're feeling hopeless. They're feeling lost. They're lonely. They don't have a sense of direction in life. Uh, they sit next to those concrete walls, and they believe that there is no future for them. They don't know if anybody cares about them on the entire face of the earth. Hmm. Uh, maybe no one ever comes to see them, which is a real tragedy because as believers, we're called to visit those who are in prison. Uh, let me just speak to you if you're in that situation. The same Lord that reached into that prison and, and talked to the heart of Surge can speak to you right now if you're in that same situation. Hmm. That's regardless of your place in life, whether you're successful in the business world or you're struggling in a relationship or even if you're finding yourself 
behind bars with little or no hope right now. John, the answers to all of life's major questions are right there in the Bible. If we'll just take the time to pick it up and and read it. Uh, If you're listening today and you truly have a desire for a greater understanding of that life that Serge talked about, just contact us. We really do have some wonderful folks on staff here who would like to interact with you. Uh, And I'll have contact information for you in just a minute. Uh, Bill, we promised our listeners earlier that uh, we'd give a little more information about Serge at the uh, close of this broadcast. In addition to his work with Teen Challenge, he also founded a chapter of Prison Fellowship Canada, which reaches out to prisoners. And we have to mention that the Canadian government recognized the genuine reform in his life. And in February of 2000, the National Parole Board there in Canada granted Serge Leclerc a full pardon. Hmm. What an incredible end to his his prison story, but of course a new beginning for his life on the outside, uh, reaching out to those who are hurting. Hmm. Uh, That really does put a nice punctuation mark on this Focus on the Family broadcast. And uh, just as God reformed that one life, we need to continue to pray for God to uh, raise up men and women to share the gospel with others who are behind bars, many of them so spiritually hungry. And uh, we need to ask the Lord to bring about reform in their lives as well, eternal reform. Uh, If you've listened to our program today and you'd like to know more about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, we have a brochure that we'd be happy to send you. It contains information about the Christian life and uh, describes the process of becoming a Christian. Uh, It's called Coming Home, an Invitation to Join God's Family. We've also posted the text of that brochure online at our website. Our program today was provided by Focus on the Family, and our host has been author and psychologist in residence here at the ministry, Dr. Bill Meyer. Our producer has been John Scott Welch, thanks to our engineering team, which included Pete Stokey and Steve Gandy. And I'm John Fuller, thanking you for tuning in, inviting you back next time when we'll once again turn our hearts toward home. And with that, we've come to the end of this Focus on the Family broadcast. We've included another program entitled Ministering to Prisoners' Families, which originally aired in April of 2004. And now, here's how this broadcast got underway. Please, take some more bread. More bread? (laughs) Would you believe that this was my crime? Your crime? Yeah. My sister's children were starving, so I stole a loaf of bread. And for that, I was sentenced to 19 years in jail. Mm. In Victor Hugo's classic novel, Les Miserables, uh, Jean Valjean spent nearly 20 years incarcerated for stealing a loaf of bread, leaving behind a starving family. You're probably familiar with that classic story. And while prison sentences have changed a lot since the 18th century, one thing that hasn't changed is that for every person in jail, a family is affected. And with that in mind, we'll take the next 30 minutes or so to hear a message about ministering to the families of imprisoned individuals. I'm John Fuller, and our host for today's presentation is family physician in residence here at the ministry, Dr. Walt Laramore. John, just like the 18th century, though, in the 21st century, prisoners' families are still some of the most overlooked people in our society. Hmm. You know, there's um, a stigma that goes along with having a relative who's incarcerated. And because of this, more often than not, they're just plain forgotten. Well, we're here today to try to change that. We have a special message from a man who has experienced the difficulties associated with prison, but from the inside. He's used those experiences to bring help and hope to those that society has made invisible. His name is Manuel Mill, or Manny as he likes to be called, and he's the founder and executive director of Koinonia House National Ministries, Inc. John, it's a post-prison ministry that helps prisoners in bridging the gap from Mm. prison to the local church and community. And I think we need to let our listeners know that Manny's originally from Cuba, so you'll notice a strong accent when he speaks. But his message is interesting, and John, to me, it's challenging. And I don't want to take any more of his time, so let's push the play button and get things started. That is an excellent idea, and let me point out that this recording is a little bit um, scratchy in spots, but the message is very important for us to hear. 
And so let's listen in now as Manny Mills speaks with a group at the Congress on the Urban Family in Atlanta, Georgia. Let me just uh, share a little bit about myself. Um, as you heard, I went to prison. I always say that I went to Yale. People say, man, you went to Yale. You must be real smart. <laughs> you an Ivy Leaguer. I said, no, I went to jail. You see, I cannot pronounce the uh, J very well, so I can fool people. I, uh, you know, uh, so, but when I went to jail, I was married. I had a beautiful wife, Cuban wife. I had two kids, today they are 17 and 12. And when I came back from Venezuela, where I was hiding from the FBI and I was, I thought, doing very well there, I had the best Cuban restaurant in the country. But every time I saw a white guy with blonde hair, six feet tall, I say, man, that's an FBI agent, you see? I was always hunted. I had no peace in my heart. So to make a long one short, the FBI went to see my father and he told my father in Spanish what I had done. I had lied to my father and said that I was in Venezuela because one of my dreams was to have a Cuban restaurant. See, I was a successful businessman. I was the number one salesman for a company called Prudential in the country. So I was making a quarter of a million dollars. I was the mayor's aide for the city of Union City, New Jersey, not Georgia. And I was on top of the world. I used to conduct Latin shows and Latin cruises. I was a, a Latin lover, I thought. I had hair and everything then, you know. I was a very good dancer, very good dancer. And I had lied to my father. And in the Hispanic culture, you respect your father very much. So when my father called me and told me that he knew what I had done, man, I was ashamed. And he told me, Manny, I know how much time you are facing, 55 years. I know that you are there not because of the restaurant, you are there because you're hiding from the FBI. But he asked me a, a very important question which I had no answer for. He said, Manny, if I die today, could you come to my wake? And I began to weep and my mother had been saved four years prior to that. And she began to give me the gospel, the Navi Mickey Mouse, gospel, but the real, true gospel of Jesus Christ, if you repent, He is going to accept you. If you confess Jesus with your mouth and you believe in your heart, you're going to be saved. I mean, she gave me the biblical language, the biblical gospel, the real good news, and I began to weep, and I accepted Jesus into my heart, and Jesus Christ Cut me, not the FBI. But then, after the weeping and all that, she, she asked me, Manny, when are you going to come back? I said, well, that was not part of the deal. You see, I didn't want to come back and face the music, per se. But she said, Manny, even if you have to do the 55 years, let me give you your first verse. Hebrew 13, 5. She said, the Lord is going to be with you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. And let me tell you, that verse has become one of the most paramount texts in my life. Because in the last few years, I have gone through a little bit of a valley. And God has been faithful. And He's been with me the whole time. Um, to make a long one short again, I came back. And the FBI was there waiting for me. I got booked. And the judge only gave me three years. I mean, I didn't want to fight it. I didn't want to say that I didn't do it. I did it. You know, I pleaded guilty. And the judge gave me three years. I served two years. But I was not the best husband like most husbands that go into prison are not model husbands. <laughs> you know, so there's already damage in the home and in the family. 
when the judge sentences the man to prison, he's also sentencing the family as well. So when we're talking about ministering to the prisoner's family, it is so important that we think of the entire family. And let me say this, that I lost my family. And we're going to be talking about this soon in the outline, but I was not knowledgeable in what to do because I was a baby Christian. Just got back, got in, went in, and I didn't know what to speak. I didn't know who to turn to. And I lost my family. My wife found somebody else, another Cuban, uh, began to live with him and left me, divorced me. I couldn't do a thing because I was in prison. And I didn't see my kids for over five and a half years. So I'm just telling you how important it is not just to minister to the prisoner, but also to, to also minister to the family of the prisoner. Okay, so with that said, I just want you to know that I was a victim of my own sin, and I'm responsible for it. But because of the jail experience, I lost everything. My restaurant, prudential business, family, I didn't see my... There was a big consequence for my greed, for my sin, for my own centeredness. I always said that we all believe in the Trinity. We all believe in the Trinity. Some of us believe in the human Trinity. Some of us believe in the Holy Trinity. And the human Trinity is me, myself, and I. And that's the one that I used to believe in. Me, myself, and I. Let's just go quickly through the outline that you have. And we're going to begin with the problem. How does a family hold together during an incarceration? It is very difficult. Very difficult. Point A. The way that I did this for you is that we're going to deal with the problem and then I want to deal with the solution. Because, I mean, we know what the problem is. I just want to quickly outline it for you. A. If the father is incarcerated, the spouse or the partner and children without wage, without money. That's why my wife had to find somebody else. Because I was not there to provide for them. B, if the mother, and we also have ladies in prison, and most of them have kids. The children are without their mother. And who has to take care of those kids, even the grandmother or the government or foster parents? See, if the son or the daughter, the parents are embarrassed and don't know what to do. D, final point is, family serves time as well, just as much as the incarcerated point is the whole family is doing time. The home becomes a chaos, becomes disintegrated. Number two, how big is the problem? And this is really staggering. When I began to look at the numbers, we have 1.8 million human beings in prison today. We are the number one country in the world that puts people behind bars. Over 60% of those who are in prison have children. It never fails. Every time I go in, and I go in almost every week, I ask the guys, how many of you have kids? Not half, but about 70% of them raise their hands. And I said, how many of you are fatherless? Meaning that your father was not there in the home for you. And if he was, he was getting high or getting drunk. You know, might as well not be there. 
and about 75% of those hands go up again. I'm saying to them, hey guys, you are doing to your kids the same thing that your father has done to you. You have the power in Jesus Christ now to break the cycle of crime. You have now the ability, because we talk about grace. And let me tell you the, the real meaning of the word grace is equal to power plus ability. Grace is not just unmerited favor, but grace means power and ability to be able to do the things that I could not do before when I was not a Christian. So we have 1.8 million human beings in prison today. Over 97% of all of those 1.8 million who are in prison, 97% are going to get out whether we like it or not. So 97% are going to get out, and I always say they are not going to disappear. Now, in, in every state, even here, Georgia has what is called the what? The Department of what? Of Corrections. They have to change the name. Because it's not correcting anybody. As a matter of fact, let me give another number here. 82%. From the 97% that get out, 82% come back into prison within two years. Now, what is that telling you? That is telling you, well, let me say to you what it's not telling you. It's not telling you that the guys liked it in prison so much that they want to come back. It's not telling you that the food was so sweet, so wonderful. And they, now telling you that the hotel was so wonderful at like the Sheraton that they want to come back. No. What he's saying is they are bad because they committed another crime. Now listen, look at the next statistics. And we're going to be talking about this a little bit more. Approximately, and this is a very conservative figure now, up about 11% of the 1.8 million people who are in prison are Christians. One of my visions that God has given me is a two-fold vision. That the church will begin to take responsibility for their brothers and sisters in prison. And I say here that the same amazing grace that took to save you is the same amazing grace that it took to save that man in prison or that lady in prison. Same quality, same quantity of grace. Therefore, they are equal in the body of Christ. And in the last few months, many wonderful things have happened. For example, you can take these two with you. The National Association of Evangelicals, the NAE, and the NBA, the National Black Evangelical Association, together for the very first time have passed a resolution recognizing the church in prison and furthermore recognizing the church in prison as equal in value to the church in the street. And this is a historical resolution, so if you want to read it, it is here. You can take it with you. So I just wanted to mention that. Now, point number G. Gangs are increasing at a very rapid pace. Gangs are no more people than a Mickey Mouse family. That's what a gang is. Because the father is absent from the home. And even when he's not absent, he's not there to take care of the children. He's not taking care of the responsibilities. And the gang becomes the connection for this youngster to connect with. So he can belong. Let me just say this to you. There are also gangs for ladies as well. Not just young men. There are ladies 
who are involved in gangs as well. In Chicago, I'm sure that here is as well. In Chicago, we have 140 different gangs. The number one gang is the Gangsters Di Disciples. And the Gangsters Disciples are making more disciples than the Church of Jesus Christ is making, at least in Chicago. They have over 30,000 members. Teenage crime has increased 165%. What are the options? Number A, immediate split. Immediate split. Because the prisoner has no contact with family. Over 50% of all the prisoners never receive a visit. More than 35% of all prisoners never receive a piece of mail. Contact is maintained but with great obstacles. Visits are hard because the mother with the two kids have no car, no money for the gasoline, and as you may know, prisons are not around the corner from the house. <laughs> they are hours and hours away. So you have to plan the whole day, and if the mother is working, she cannot take a day off because she needs the money to be able to support the kids that the man is supposed to be supporting, but he's in prison. You see, visas are expensive. Hotel, food. Three, telephone calls are only collect. And they are expensive as well. Letter writing is really awkward. You know, they don't even know what to say, and many of the men don't know how to write very well, don't know how to read very well. The longer the incarceration, the likelihood that the family will break. It happened to me, it happens to about 85% of the times when a man goes in married, comes out divorced. And from the 15% that survives in the first year, they split in half, meaning about 7% only make it with difficulties. How can the church help? Number one, pray. Family ministry takes wisdom and balance. Family independence is always the goal. Many families are very needy and there is a danger in developing dependency while meeting immediate needs. Provide support for the family. The lady needs the home to be repaired. The car may not be working. It needs an oil change. That's a way to help. Provide child care. Assist with homework. Assist with visiting. Take them, take them to see the, the dad or take them to see the husband. Help family find ways to keep the incarcerated involved in family life. Angel Tree, an excellent ministry of prison fellowship. What they do is that they provide gifts for the children of the man who is doing time who cannot pay them. And this ministry buys the gifts for the kids. It's a wonderful program. And the idea is to follow through with the family so they can come to church and connect with it. I always say this. Everything the Christian needs is in the church. But they have to connect first. And that's a wonderful way to do that. If you live near a prison you might want to consider opening a house to house family members who are coming to visit the husband or the daddy. D, emotional support big time. Prayer partners for the family members of the prisoner. Be good listeners. Help deal with anger and with bitterness, resentment, guilt, and depression. Five, what is the ultimate need? The ultimate need is this. We must be willing to break the cycle of crime by getting the job done. 
the vision that the Lord has given me is to have a Christian brother or sister in prison get connected with a local church in the street. I told you we have about 190,000 Christians in prison. We can connect one of these brothers or sisters with the local church in the street. This is the picture that the Lord gave me right here. Ah, well, this is Focus on the Family, and we've been listening to a message from Manny Mill. He's the founder and executive director of Koinonia House National Ministries. And, uh, Walt, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And I'm thinking that that probably extends as well to the prisoner's family. Uh, where we can have an, a tremendous impact by being compassionate and Christ-like with uh, the many spouses and children who are left behind uh, to deal with life on their own when uh, mom or dad is incarcerated. Uh, it's a staggering number of people affected and a great opportunity for the church. You know, it really is, John. I'm also reminded in Acts 12:5, where Scripture says that Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And, and, you know, we've heard Dr. Dobson speak on this program in the past about the fact that children of prisoners are high-risk kids. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's a very high chance that these kids will develop behavioral problems, that they'll use and abuse drugs, or as you know, Manny pointed out in the broadcast, join gangs and such. And, John, we're not saying that every child in this situation will turn to these things, but it's true that they're at increased risk. And, you know... Right. Yeah. I'm kind of sad to say that many of us in the church are not doing enough to help. But it's encouraging to me to see that there are people and that there are ministries willing to reach out and make a difference and in the process motivate us to do the same. John Manny has given us some good advice today on what we can do to come alongside those troubled and hurting families. And I hope we'll begin to see a change for the better as a result of today's broadcast. Well, that's my hope as well, and uh, as we have committed this program in prayer uh, to the Lord that he might use it, um, I'm sure that there are some listening today who really just needed an encouraging word. Uh, they need to, to uh, be reminded that they ought not lose heart. There is help, uh, first and foremost in the Lord and then in his people, and uh, to that end, we're here to help. Uh, we'll make sure to have a link on our website to Koinonia House and uh, to Chuck Colson's ministry as well. And um, one other note, Walt, is a website here at Focus on the Family that can help folks who are dealing with serious life issues, much like those that Manny uh, was struggling with. And uh, this is a way that uh, folks can get answers to some of life's more pressing questions. It's a website called troubledwith.com. Why don't you describe that for us? John, I love this website, and I think every one of our listeners will want to know about this because this site talks about 85 of the most common problems that are addressed by our colleagues at work and folks in the neighborhood. And it gives us an opportunity when we're trying to cultivate relationships and so biblical truth into our relationships with pre-Christians to bring a helping hand to them, to bring the advice of experts mm -hmm. that can help their friend. You know, Dr. Dobson often says that there's an invisible sign on the outside of our building here in Colorado Springs which says, help for hurting families here. Mm -hmm. right. And John, we've talked about before in this program that people tend not to trust Christ until they first trust Christians. And where do they trust Christians the most? When we're able to help them with common problems that we're having. And that's one of Dr. Dobson's goals from the very first day that he started Focus on the Family. And TroubledWith.com is an extension of his concern for hurting families. Mm. Well, that is well said. And uh, if you have questions beyond uh, TroubledWith.com, go to our homepage on the web at family.org. And that brings us to the end of this Focus on the Family program. We trust that this material has been helpful to you, and we welcome your questions or comments on this topic. Our address is Focus on the Family, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80995. 
Our phone number is 1-800, the letter A, and the word family. That's 1-800-232-6459. In Canada, write to Focus on the Family, Box 9800, Vancouver, B.C., V6B, 4G3. The phone number in Canada is 1-800-661-9800. And thank you for listening.